Good morning. Uh, good morning to everybody in person. Uh, good morning to everybody online. Yeah, that happened. Praise God. Just going to push through um, that moment together. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and meet me in the book of Colossians. It's where we are. It's where we're going to be for the foreseeable future. Uh, we started this journey with a very clear purpose, and I, I think it's fair and necessary to reiterate that purpose as I set my timer, because that could be dangerous. Thank you, Tracy, Jesus' name. Um, the purpose was that we would recapture the greatness thereof of Jesus and Christianity. Right, And that we would literally say, man, there's just some significant dynamics of who Jesus is, claims that he makes, and there's some significant, simplistic realities of Christianity that have been lost in this moment. And we're like, yo, we want to recapture that. And as we seek to recapture the greatness of Jesus and the simplicity, the necessity of Christianity, we're like, what book can we journey through to accomplish that? And that's where Colossians really just kind of rose to the surface as D, D book where we can say, man, if we just like live in this space for a few months, man, everything else can change. And so we're still in Colossians. Now, where we are in our journey through Colossians, we are at what is known as the poem or the hymn of Christ. We've been it for the last few weeks. We're going to be in it today. We're going to be in it next week. It is this rich description of the excellencies of who Jesus is, what he says about himself, what is said about him, uh, the claims that he is making, the work he's accomplishing, it is absolutely loaded. And where we're gonna be at specifically in this like umbrella of excellencies is a few of verses that, I mean, yeah, they're just, I'm so excited about it. You know, but I'm not, I'm not going to, yeah, praise God. If you were here first service, you knew in Jesus' name. However, there's an opportunity presented to us through the text. Colossians 1, 18 and 19 specifically, there's an opportunity presented to us to actually talk about us. He is the head of the body, the church. Firstborn from the dead. For please God, for the fullness to dwell in him. He is the head of the body of the church. That is insider language. Now, let me go in and say, today is going to feel like I'm talking specifically to Christians. I know people who gather here. I know people who um, watch and engage online. There's a lot of people who actually don't believe in Jesus. They like the community. They're still figuring things out. They're on a journey that is amazing. Keep journeying with us. We'll get there together, God willing, okay? But I do want to acknowledge that there's going to be a lot of today that feels like, man, this feels like insider language. And, you know, that kind of makes me uncomfortable a little bit, but it's necessary to say because there is an opportunity here to talk about us. And I want to seize that opportunity, and I want to talk about us in ways that I hope are invigorating, encouraging, challenging, because we have taken some legitimate else historically as the church, and we have taken some legitimate L's recently in the last few years. And I do want to talk about us. I want to, but again, while the opportunity is here, this passage really isn't about us primarily. It's about Jesus. So the flow of our time is really going to be looking at examining and applying two explicit statements, ideas that are found in the text, and a thread that I think is between the two of them. Two explicit 
ideas and one thread. First idea, he is the head of the body, the church. Second idea, for the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. And then the thread between those two, we'll take it bit by bit. And yeah, it'll be fun. It's going to be a ride. Let's go. Let's read it and then get to work. Uh, Colossians 1.15. Y'all, y'all with me? I feel like I'm talking to myself. I don't like that. Y'all good? Y'all here? Jesus' name. Praise God. I just needed that for me. Uh, 1.15 <laughs> reads like this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Didn't we just sing that? Protector, keeper, it's you that holds us together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This passage is amazing. Um, you know, I just, I just got back. We were on a way. I was preaching at this camp. My daughter actually was able to attend this camp. It was a great experience. Uh, as a pastor was communicating, uh, they're one of our partner churches. We love them to death. They're out in Atlanta Metro, um, Westridge Church. Um, he, he said something that was just like, he was talking about how, you know, they started 25 years ago, you know, in a room of like four people. And, and then he's, but the guy just started doing amazing things. And I was like, 25 years. And I just started calculating that in like Miami time. Cause you know, Miami is like, we measure years in like dog times. This is different. I'm like, man, that's like a hundred years in Miami. That's wild. But I just sat and thought to myself and I just was reflecting. I'm like, man, but that's actually why we moved here in the first place. That is why we left the comfort of the buckle of the Bible belt to come to a place where we can say, man, God, you're already doing work. How can we join you? Because we believe, we understand that influence is often attached to faithfulness and longevity. To go be in a place for a long period of time and see what God does. So I just started just thinking about, man, God, just, man, I'm so glad I just could be in Miami. Like, I, like this is home. I love it. And I just started thinking about the beginning of, of the brook and our story and on our journey. And Easter 2015, uh, what we preached from, we preached from this passage. This was the passage that we laid out in front of everybody. And we were like, listen, guys, there's going to be a lot of things that change in the world. There's a lot of things that change in our city. Bitcoin is popping right now. This is like Bitcoin Fire Festival was last week, and I'm glad I was in Daytona for that. I was like, this is too much. This is crazy. Amen. There's a lot of transition consistently happening in our city and happening in our church, but as things turn over, as things trans transition, as different faces fill the room or online, the one thing that must be constant is this. 
the greatness of Jesus enveloping people, transforming them from the inside out together. This. So this passage, guys, this, I just don't want this to be lost on us, the weight and the beauty here that we would consistently swim around in all of the scriptures, but Colossians 1, 15 through 20, the hymn or poem of Christ is astounding. Significant claims. Three ideas, again, that we're going to deal with. Let's deal with the first. Examine it and apply it. He is the head of the body, the church. We're familiar with head language. That's not necessarily a concept that is like light bulb. Like we kind of know head language and we usually associate head language with authority, right? Head of the household. Some of you claimed that for the first time because you wanted that stimmy, you know what I'm saying? And so you're like, how can I get that cash? Ah, head of the household. I have authority over my life in a unique way. H-N-I-C, head Negro in charge. I'm looking at you in Jesus' name. El Jefe. Hey, get busy. That's what's up. So we, we understand this idea of authority that is attached to head. The right to rule, make certain decisions, and set a particular direction. However, It's way more involved than that. In fact, there's really three dynamics that if we examine critically and honestly, we see that are associated with this idea of head. It's not just authority, it's nobility, it's responsibility, and it is authority. And what has just been said is Jesus carries nobility, responsibility, and authority over a particular group of people, the church. Now, that is not to say that he doesn't have nobility, responsibility, or authority elsewhere. It is to draw our attention to the unique nobility, the unique responsibility, and the unique authority that he has among a particular group of people. Let's get into it. Nobility. Nobility deals with worthiness and privilege. Jesus, nobility, with the church is attached to his willingness to die for her. Dark Knight, Kristen Bell, the definitive Batman. Although Robert Pattinson is coming for him. Have you seen that trailer for that new Batman? It's glorious. I event, he's coming for him. Nevertheless, Kristen Bell, the definitive Batman. If you've seen The Dark Knight, at the end of the movie, he's having a conversation with Selena Cowell, Bane, born in the darkness, is getting ready to blow up the city. And Selena's like, yo, Bruce, we got to go. It's time to leave. You don't owe these people anything. You've given them enough. You've given them everything. And, you know, the definitive Batman stares at her, and it's like, I haven't given them everything. Not yet. More to give. Implication being that he is going to die for them. Now, he pulls an okey-doke. Yeah, he doesn't actually die if I ruin the movie. But we know that even that is just pristine. That is dignified. There's a, you are willing to die for a people? It does something to us. 
This is who we claim as Christ, that he was willing to die for a people. The entire book of Revelation elevates the worthiness of Christ, and what is said about him is, worthy is the lamb who was slain. John 10, 11 says this about Jesus. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The nobility that just hovers around his headship is attached not to the way he flexes power, but to the way that he submits himself for the life of others. It's great. I think about all the dynamics of his headship speaking to us. Like if we, we examine his nobility, we examine his responsibility, we examine his authority, what would the words of Christ be to us in light of those things? And I think in light of the nobility of Jesus, I think this is what he would say to us. I think Jesus' words to us, given his noble leadership, would be this. I've given my life for you. Yet there's more grace to get and more life to experience. Hear Jesus say that to you right now. I've given my life for you. Yet there's more to experience. Nobility, worthy and privileged, attached to its headship. There's more. Responsibility. Responsibility uh, deals with accountability and capability. Um, there's this conversation that occurs in the life of Jesus with his followers found in Matthew 16. Matthew 16, um, Jesus is asking a question. He's like, okay, we've been at this for an extended period of time. What is the word regarding me? Who do people say that I am? What are the statements that are floating out there regarding who I am? And, and so they just start to rattle off stuff. Some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're another prophet. Some say that you're a good person. He's like, okay, cool, cool. I see that that is out there, but let's, let's tune everybody else out and let's lock in on you who have been with me in a unique way for an extended period of time. Church, who do you say that I am? And then Peter responds, well, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus is like, that's a great answer. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, Peter, but the spirit from heaven. God came down, opened your heart, opened your eyes, then opened your mouth so that you could confess the greatness of who I am. And then Jesus responds by saying this, and I tell you, Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There is a lot there. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In Christian history and Christian tradition, there's a lot of ways people understand that statement from Christ. Some understand that statement from Christ saying, okay, the rock of the church is Peter. Therefore, he is the apex of this thing, and from that idea, you get Catholicism among other things. Some people are like, no, the rock of which Jesus is going to build this unique people and this unique movement, the church, is not really Peter alone, but it's really the claims that he just made, i.e., he's the Messiah, this salvation message. I fall into that camp. We as a church fall into that camp. Now, regardless 
of what camp you choose, there is no debate on what comes next. I will build my church. It's not these leaders who take a salary. There's not some people with more influence than others because they fit the mold. It is not the most gifted or the most willing. Jesus is saying, I will shoulder the responsibility of my church flourishing. I will build my church. That should free every single one in here who's a Christian. Jesus is like, I'm going to do all the heavy lifting. Rest. I imagine Jesus' words to us would be this, in light of his responsibility. I'm shouldering the responsibility to build this unique assembly of people to accomplish this unique purpose in the cosmos. I like it. Not just nobility, responsibility is what we're usually familiar with, which is authority, which is the right to rule, to create certain decisions and to set a particular um, direction. But the way that shows up in the life of a church, Revelation 2 says this, um, Jesus responding to John's view of the throne. Jesus is going to start to unpack the greatness of who he is and what is coming at the end of ages. Now, some of us have Kirk Cameron and left behind informing our view of Revelation, and I just want to challenge that, all right? Revelation is not about some of the stuff that we've seen out there. It's about the centrality and the supremacy of Christ and what he is going to do when time is over. And as he's communicating to John, he says this about some churches. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. Repentance is turning from and turning towards. That is biblical repentance. Turn from something, turn towards something else. It's not either or, it's both and. You don't have both, you don't have repentance. And what he's saying is like, remember from where you've fallen. You had this tremendous love. He's talking to the church in Ephesus. He's like, turn from this, but turn towards good Works And then he says this, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I will remove your position. I will remove your authority. I will remove your presence among this place. There's a lot of churches that I think should close their doors. I say that with no degree of arrogance. I say that with all humility and sadness. I'm like, you, you should stop gathering. I'm just reiterating what God said. This is what God said in Isaiah. Isaiah, God's like, you know what? Your Sabbaths, your songs, they're wearisome for me because you've neglected certain things. You've neglected justice among your people. So you might as well stop singing until you're ready to repent. 
And so I fall in line with that, and there's certain, I'm like, man, I really feel like you should close your doors and re-examine some things. You know what I can't do? I can't step into them and be like, hey, give me that mic. Give me that guitar. No more acoustic for you. Like, I can't, like, that. You know who can do that? Jesus. And what I've seen is often when we see churches that drift, like, we're quick to call them out. I get that. I wish we'd be quicker to call on the one who has the authority over that church and to plead the way Jesus just pled. I don't want to extinguish this lampstand. I want you renewed. He has unique authority. All of this is expressing this unique leadership that Jesus has over his church. Jesus' words to us in light of his authority, I believe, would be, I see you, I know who you are, I know what I want from you, and I know what I want for you. He is a leader. Jesus, as the leader of the church, means he moves his people towards his purposes, and his life is a pattern of all of their practices. It is very hard to receive Jesus as leader because we have so many examples that are trash. La basura, bad. And I acknowledge that difficulty. I acknowledge the ways I've contributed to that difficulty. But just because something is difficult doesn't mean it should go undone. Jesus leads. In various churches, leadership of Jesus shows up in a lot of ways. Let me tell you the way it must show up in this church and in other churches. It shows up as people not having the right or the authority to redefine or reorient the priorities of God. I do not have the right to lead from my hobby horses, of which there are many. We lead from the full counsel of God's word because he leads us. There's more here. I love this passage. That's the first statement. Next statement, you get down with me, uh, verse 19, it reads, reads like this. For in him all, all, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That is loaded. This is linchpin language. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's this word Paul uses frequently. He uses it more than any other writer in the Bible, in the New Testament. It's this word pleroma, sum total, completeness, no lack. And what he's saying is like the sum total of who God is, Yahweh, the God who delivered his people from bondage, the God who called out a man, Abraham, and made him into a people, Israel, Yahweh. The fullness of who God is was pleased, was delighted, had a smile on his soul to dwell in humanity in this frame, Jesus, this is linchpin language. 
Incarnation is the word. Incarnation is the word. John 1. Neil mentioned it a few weeks ago. It's necessary to come back. John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Doesn't that sound like Colossians 1, 15 through 20? The consistency between how the writers of the scripture saw Jesus. Their conviction is worth our consideration. They saw him as God. And so they described this powerful, rich, beautiful word, indestructible, full of light, full of life. And John 1:14 happens, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as one the only son from the father full of grace and truth for from his fullness we have received his pleroma we have received grace upon grace the incarnation is mysterious and majestic and we need to allow it to be that In fact, we should consistently pray, God, would the mystery and the majesty of the incarnation stir and shape us, stir us that you would exit a chorus of angels consistently screaming your greatness and your praise, and you would enter into this humanity, this human experience, where you would experience fatigue and sadness and sorrow and pain For us, the mystery and majesty of that. But this is linchpin language. This is Paul making sure that we are clear regarding who Jesus is. So, Seth Rogen, I was reading an article, and he had this statement. I thought it was, I thought it was powerful, super self-aware, super humbling. And he was talking about how not all jokes are timeless. In fact, jokes aren't timeless. And some jokes don't age well. He's like, that's okay. And he's like, in this moment where, you know, some comics are frustrated because they're like, man, I feel like I'm being canceled because of some of the jokes I've made. He's like, stop being a comic then because not all jokes are going to age well. Not all movies are going to age well. He's like, we need to have the humility to understand that. I was like, Seth Rogen said that? Like, Superman? Like, Pineapple Express? And I was like, all right, cool. But it was so refreshing. There's a movie, a lot of movies, that aren't aging well. Let me give us one. Austin Powers. Now, some of y'all, I mean, see, see, and I'm not, I'm not going to shame you if you laugh at the movie because there's a lot, you know, but there's parts of the movie that's like, oh. the sequel. You know, if you're familiar with Austin Powers, like you have Austin Powers and then you have Dr. Evil, who is really like a spoof of James Bond movies. He has a scar on his eye, <laughs> the cat, and like, but in the sequel, you had the clone of him a little miniature version of Dr. Evil. The late, great Vernon Troyer, may you rest in peace. And he had a lot of similarities to Dr. Evil. They both did, though. 
you know, both bald, scar, but they were different. They were similar, but they weren't the same. That is not what this is. Paul is saying fullness, same, not similar. You see Jesus, you see Yahweh. This is definitive Christianity. If we miss that, we miss Christianity. We can get a whole bunch of other stuff. We could get the Church of Latter-day Saints. We could get Mormonism. We do not have Christianity. Homoousia, same substance, the same. It matters. And this is a direct shot against Gnostics and the theology that tries to separate spiritual from physical and creates this new experience and this new knowledge. And he's like, no, fullness in bodily form. This matters significantly. There's a weight here. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus. You want to know who God is like? You want to know what's on his mind? There was this Middle Eastern, middle-aged man who died a single human being who tells us what God is like. Jesus. All right. I got a little excited there. There's a thread between these two. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus. And what the scriptures go through great lengths to portray for us is that the fullness of Jesus dwells among his people. The fullness of Jesus dwells among us. This is Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. For in him, Paul speaking again, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Do, does that sound familiar to what we just read? This is Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, again, there's this entire framework of the body and the fullness of Christ that is informing Paul's writings. Paul, again, says this, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Sound familiar again? Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus, and the fullness of Jesus dwells in the church, in us, Christian, together. So many things burst from that truth. I'm going to give us several as we close, but let me start here. There's a nobility that can't be lost on what it means to be part of the family of God. We talked about this some four or five weeks ago. Saints. God says that about Christians who have received the gospel. They've turned away. They've repented from their sin. They've repented from the ways that they have tried to cosplay God or create counterfeit gods who fail. They've turned. And they've received grace. Saints. We bear the marks of divine intention, and we bear the marks of hypocrisy. 
the church at large. And the church, the brook, has failed in more ways than we even know. And every single time we pretend like that's not true, or we try and diminish it, we fail all the more. And what we do is we hurt people. We hurt people. In this room, right now, online right now, are people who are actively dealing with pain from the church. We just need to affirm that, acknowledge that, not try and excuse it away. We can make sense of it, amen, everybody's story is different, but that's not the goal. That's not where we start. We start with affirmation of how we failed. Track it with me? And so I know that everything I'm getting ready to rattle off regarding the expression of the fullness of God among us may land on hard, hurting hearts. But I'm praying God could till the ground and make it soft again and change our interpretive lens from that of pain to one of possibility. If we have an interpretive lens primarily of pain, we will lower the ceiling of joy and we will alter our experience in life. Two years ago, toward my ACL, um, I told people I was saving a baby from the street. Reality, I was walking to the airport. It just it happened. <laughs> Praise God. Got surgery, was laid up in my house. Thank you for everybody who helped me at the time. You know, sickness would be just kind of, in Jesus' name, it's the way the Lord keeps me humble. But um, one of my kids, who I'm not going to mention, um, they came up to me. They was like, Daddy, gave me a hug, bumped into my knee. The, the roar that came from my soul hit like seven different octaves. I was like, ah! it was just like a, this immediate, like guttural response of pain. They stepped back, dad, do you love me? Am I cool? Am I grounded forever? And I was like, all of that is possible, you know? <laughs> and, and I was like, man, I had to repent. <laughs> I had to apologize. I'm sorry for this guttural roar. Like, I didn't mean to. Um, you hurt me, but, you know, I was already hurting. You hurt me, but I was already hurting. You hurt me, but I was already hurting. I was already hurting. And so there's this interpretive lens of pain that caused me to respond in a particular way to you. Does that make sense? Living in a fallen, broken world, we will all have experiences of pain that create an interpretive lens. And we just have to deal with it, guys. We have to deal with it. And one way I hope we don't deal with it is by giving up on the church. Don't give up on the church. God has it. All right, that was long. Fullness of God dwells among us. Implications, let me rattle them off. First implication. If the fullness of Jesus dwells among us, we are part of a larger picture. And when I say we, I mean we individually and we collectively as a church. Here's what that means. The fullness of God dwells among us, not you individually. You do not carry the definitive expression of who Jesus is. We do, you don't. That matters. 
Because if we move away from the church, we're actually moving away from the fullness of who God is. I cannot privatize or personalize the picture of Jesus Christ. It's collective. That's the individual dynamic of that. Furthermore, when we think about that like locally together, we are not the fullest expression of Jesus in Miami. We need a thousand churches everywhere so that we get the most accurate depiction of who Jesus is. You track it with me. So when we talk about them, we're actually talking about we, the church, it matters. This is 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. This is the word picture that Paul is laying on every single Christian together, the church. This unique, unified group of people that are simultaneously diverse. More implications. Let me give you a negative and then a positive. Here's a negative. If that is true, we are... God, help us, please, help us. If that is true, we are deficient when certain people or voices are less visible and or audible. Do you hear me? If that is true, we are deficient when certain people or voices are less visible or audible. That is not a good thing. That is not something we celebrate. That is something that we mourn. That is something that we seek to correct. You don't force it, you foster it. That's the negative. We're deficient if certain voices or people are less visible and audible. That is why I'm constantly saying, we need you at the table. We need your voice. We need your visibility. Because when you are present, the picture of Christ is more excellent. That is not lip service. That is not some, like, flattery to get people. Like, that is, that is the Bible. That's how we understand this thing. Now, let me say the positive of that. The diversity of the body isn't its weakness or a gimmick. The diversity of the body is its strength and design. Listen to me. It is like marketing steroids. I said another word, first service, I switched it up. It is marketing steroids to use ambiguously ethnic people to sell a product. I'm, look, I'm looking at you, and I'm like, man, I don't know, what, what are you? And, don't, and then you start thinking that, right? You're like, are you black? Are you what? And then it's trying to put all these people in the same room. I'm like, that's a stock photo. That is not your dinner table. Gimmick. To emotionally manipulate people, it is God's design for us. And it's our strength. More implications, rattle them off, rattle them off. (laughs) This is true. We are his fullness. We can't experience relationship with Jesus faithfully or fully apart from relationships in the church. Said that offhandedly, just need to say that very decisively. We cannot experience relationships, we can't do it, can't. This is 1 John 4, 20 through 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar, for he does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Here's the challenge here. We like to apply that to non-Christian relationships. 
Unfortunately, that's not what John was talking about. And he got it directly from the mouth of God. If we want to try to create the separation between scriptures, this is what Jesus said in the upper room. Love one another. Did he say, I didn't say love, like non-believe, love Christians well. If we are comfortable with broken relationships with other Christians, there's something wrong in our hearts. You tracking with me? And I cannot follow Jesus faithfully when I know I'm at odds with other Christians. That's weird. I can't write people off who God has written in the book of life. It doesn't work that way. And I know it's easy because I'm off you. You've done X, Y, and Z. You've just been... And I'm not, I'm not trying to force us into anything, but this is the standard God lays in front of us. If you're my fullness, this is an experience for you. That's why he says some weird stuff like, yo, confess your sins to one another. What? You want me to tell... What? So they can what? Come on, Jesus, you crazy. But then he says, ah, but if you don't do it, you can't be healed. I.e., there's certain type of sins and healing that's possible when we confess it to one another. I'll keep going. This is why we say we become more whole as we experience the benefits of being known as a church. That's our value. Last implication, then close. It's actually at the, the back half of this. And through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. If the fullness of Jesus dwells among us, then our collective participation has cosmic implications. It has implications beyond the community that we're in, that we need to translate the beauty of God into the way we serve people. It has implications beyond our community attached to the cosmos. Do you know you, church, are the proof God uses of his greatness? Did you know that? Do you know that you, church, your li our lives together is what God is using to get praises from angels? Where angels are looking like, yo, you make that make sense. How you're not just bringing different people into the same room and calling it a win, but you're bringing different people into the same family and calling it the church. You make that make sense. How you are bringing this unique group of people together who will strive, who will endure, who will fail one another, who will fail others, but you won't fail them. Make that make sense. This is Ephesians. This is 1 Peter, where angels are staring at us and dancing in praises to God. Only he whose ways are unsearchable and inscrutable, who are deep, who is wise. Only he can come up with a plan such as this people. There's cosmic implications for our collective participation as the church. There's angels staring at you, which is kind of creepy, but cool at the same time. Take inventory of your view of and relationship to the church generally and the Brook 
specifically? Is it being informed by this? By the one who leads, who is God himself, and how he is pleased to say, I want my fullness to be experienced among these group of people? Or is it informed by something else? By the failures of which there are many, my God, this last week has been so hard. One of the ways we take inventory of our view and our relationship to the brook is we just examine our time. We examine our talent. We examine our treasure. We examine if there's relational depth. We examine our willingness to believe. What do we take inventory, please? And rest as we do it. Because there's a great God who sees and knows and leads well. Pray with me. Um, God, thank you that you're a better leader than any man. <laughs> thank you so much that you're faithful. Oh, we sung it. Great is your faithfulness. I put my hope in Jesus. Trust, anchor. You're, you're, just, you're just a better leader. You're a better leader. God, would you give us the grace and the humility and the willingness, the wisdom to fall in line with your leadership and to hold people accountable to that, <laughs> to hold people who say that they are the church accountable to that truth, but not from a place of arrogance or pride, but because we're family and we are our brother's keeper. And when it's all said and done, would the weight and beauty of who you are be felt everywhere as you fill us and we fill all and all. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. <laughs>